Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pushing the Envelope, where all manner of fringe topics are covered from a purely biblical perspective. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the program. The Brian and I have got some things to discuss tonight that's going to take you in, well, ever closer to the edge of that envelope. But Brian has been doing some research and something caught his eye. And from this one point, we're going to extrapolate out to see what we can see. So, Brian, why don't you come on and... uh, Describe how you stumbled onto this. What made you think to look in this direction? Because when you mentioned it to me, privately, I had not even considered to look in that direction. So, how did this all come about? Well, during the uh, work I've been doing on Daniel 11 and comparing everything that goes on there to the history of the Islamic nations... I stumbled onto something that happened during the time of the um, Second Caliphate when he uh, basically had to go to Jerusalem to confirm a treaty that was made between the leaders in Jerusalem and himself. And when he was in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, one of the the, uh, priests made an offhanded statement that sort of caught my attention. Because when uh, this... Khalif was there, I believe it was Omar, was the second one off the top of my head. When he was in the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the priest made the comment of, uh, most certainly this has got to be the abomination of desolation spoken of in the book of Daniel. And my mind went someplace completely differently. My mind went to Second Thessalonians. And I basically asked myself the question, is it possible that what is being stated here in uh, verse 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, who setteth himself against and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or an object of worship, so as to seat himself as God in the temple of God, pointing himself out that he is God. You know, and the question that came to my mind, is what if this deed is actually perpetrated in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? That absolutely makes me take pause. For one, most people don't realize everything that is there in that place. And that's not all. Um, If everyone cares to remember that periodically... Uh, we have, well, they call them fracases or ruckuses, but basically uh, fights breaking out between the different groups because you have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, that they all hold services here at this place. Now, we're talking about um, the custodians is the Greek Orthodox, the Ethiopian Orthodox, 
uh, Protestants, Anglicans, the Coptic, or the, <laughs> the Syriac Orthodox. There's many, many custodians here, and you will take note that uh, every once in a while uh, there are these ruckuses that break out here, and it's pretty serious. Um, and I think every time I've looked at it, it's concerned me. But um, let's go to uh, 2002. A Coptic monk moved his chair from its agreed spot into the shade. Now, of course, because it was hot. But this was interpreted as a hostile move by the Ethiopians, and 11 people were hospitalized. Now, the news quite illicitly called this a fracas. Really, it was a brawl. In 2004, during Orthodox celebration of the exaltation of the Holy Cross, the door of a Franciscan chapel was left open. This was taken as a sign of disrespect by the Orthodox, and once again, a fist fight breaks out. Let's go to Palm Sunday, 2008. A fracas broke out between a Greek monk uh, that was ejected from the building by a rival faction. Police were called to the scene to engage, uh, well, the brawlers. On Sunday, November 9th, 2008, a clash erupted between the Armenians and the Greek monks during the celebrations for the Feast of the Cross. Ladies and gentlemen, something has been in the news that Brian and I have looked over. Now, in late February this year, 2018, after a tax dispute of over 152 million euros of uncollected taxes on the church properties, the church had closed until further notice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is, this is pretty serious. And not to mention... Uh, once you look a little deeper, you realize that, well, it has connections to the Temple of Venus. So, this kind of makes you take pause, because, well, there's some things here that you need to know. Uh, the church contains uh, the two holiest sites in Christianity, uh, the site where Jesus was crucified, uh, called Golgotha, or Calvary, and Jesus' empty tomb, where he is said to have been buried and resurrected. Now, the tomb is enclosed by the 19th century shrine. Uh, shrine. The existing, well, pact between all these different denominations that are custodians to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is called the status quo. And I had no idea that's where the phrase come from. But within the church proper are the last four of the stations of the cross, the Via della Rosa, which you've all heard me talk about before. So, in the verse that Brian just read, it never occurred to me to read it prophetically. Ladies and gentlemen, let me read it from the New American Standard Bible. 
who opposes and exalts himself above. Above. There's different points on this site. If you positioned yourself above Christ's tomb, that's exactly what you will be you would be doing. So Brian and and ladies and gentlemen, let's let's take note of what verse five says that after he does these things it alludes in the verses that this is what will unrestrain him. As of late, I have did an episode on the Assyrian false prophet and his intentions with the ashes of the red heifer. What if he takes them to this place where Christ not only died, he resurrected? It gets the gears turning, no doubt about that. Brian, back to you. Well, and this place has an extensive history, but I mean, like, you know, to bring this up ahead of time, you know, it was in the discussion that we had last night, for one, we discussed this uh, previously, whatever it is that may happen here in Israel on the Temple Mount has nothing to do with the last day's temple. And, you know, obviously we've got all kinds of talk about the temple being rebuilt again and all that, and on and on and on it goes, but... You know, there are some things that, you know, as Matthew stated when we were talking uh, yesterday about this, for instance, Revelation 11. It tells you an exact locative where Christ was crucified. Well, this church is associated with the traditional site of Golgotha on one corner. And it's also associated with the resurrection. And it gets real interesting when you begin to look at that Greek word that is used there for temple because, well, it comes up in some very telling places. For one, you've got it coming up here in Matthew 26, verse 61, who said, This man said, I can destroy the temple of God and in three days rebuild it. Once again, you have the same thing repeated in, in Matthew 27, verse 40, and saying Thou the demolisher of the temple and the rebuilder of it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So you have it here again, the same thing in uh, Mark 14, same thing repeated in Mark 15, and it just keeps continuing to state itself again. And on top of it, uh, it's the same word that's used here in Revelation 11 verse 1. And a measuring reed like a staff was given to me, and the angel stood saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them who are worshipping therein. So when you have these references from Matthew, Mark, and forward, referring to the resurrection time and time again, this really begins to make you wonder if this sort of out-in-left-field theoretical idea that kind of hit me in the last week as I was going through this historical work may have a little bit more foundation in reality than we ever considered. Back over to you for a bit. Well, Brian, you're absolutely correct. All of those references to the temple was directly to Christ's body. No doubt about it. That's what it's talking about. 
and this has always stumped me anyway, as to when you know truly what is to come. And it is laid out in a perfect timeline. Uh, you realize that whether the temple is there or not is irrelevant, because on the sixth seal, Brian, just like Christ turned around when he was exiting the Temple Mount via Robinson's Arch with his disciples and looked right at the Welling Wall and stated, not one of these stones will be left on top of one another. It's a duh issue. It's duh. When you know exactly where he exited, exactly what he was looking at, the Welling Wall, that prophetically has become the only link for the Jews back to the Holy Temple. You realize that this is one of the rain, one of the main reasons why the great day of Hugh sitteth upon the throne plays out like it does. No structure, Brian, no structure will be left standing on the six seal event. It's not going to happen. So, with that in mind, it doesn't matter if they partially build it, even if they completely build it, it's not ever going to see the darkness of the Great Tribulation. It'll never see the first day of the 1,260 days. And it's always troubled me uh, when you know that really what we're talking about is an exodusian exegesis of the timeline. This, this, uh, this whole reason why the book of Asaph was written. It's the whole point is so that you know this is going to play out exactly like the Exodus did. It's an isochronal event of being delivered. We have to scratch your head and, and think to yourself, well, the only temples that are mentioned during the Exodus is the very one that Pharaoh was setting in. That's it. And of course, in that phrase in the Greek, he who sitteth upon the throne, right there, that word for throne, is the exact word used in reference to the throne Pharaoh was sitting upon. And that puppy's coming down. They're, they're all coming down, every every structure. So it it's always kind of stumped me anyway as to why people would try to say that the temple has to be rebuilt when, Brian, I hate to break it to everybody, God never said that. He, he, he never said there was going to be an, a new temple. He, he never said that, actually. And, you know, that's the way I roll. That's the way I roll. That's the way I was trained up to roll. Okay, what's the Bible say? But if the Bible doesn't say it, I have a hard time uh, getting out of the gate for whatever exchange is going on. I, I, don't, I don't see what you're saying. He, he I mean, especially in the... New Testament, he doesn't say anything about a temple being rebuilt. He just he just doesn't. He mentions its measurements thereof, but he never mentions its rebuilding. And then you bring up the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you realize that, oh my goodness, uh, not only is this a place of great contention, everybody has, uh, you know, their foot... In the game, everybody has their hand in the cookie jar with this place, and already, routinely, 
we literally have fistfights breaking out. Boy, you talk about the perfect place to stir up trouble. It's really mind-boggling and disturbing. So back to you. Well, exactly, and that's just it. That's always been the one verse knowing full well that the likelihood of them rebuilding the third temple before the tribulation trigger is tripped is slim to none. And that's always been where in that verse where everybody has kind of looked at it going, well, but isn't that what this is stating in Second Thessalonians? And yet, here we sit, because taking a look at that Greek word, you start seeing something altogether very different. And that's why, you know, the more we looked at this since the other day, the more this started to stand out being the the uh, likelihood of this being the spot where that deed is carried out has become very strong. And, I mean, there's even some interesting... um talk going on in this, uh, at least in this Wikipedia article, they've got a subsection, uh, the connection to Temple of Venus, where there's speculation it might be even uh, connected to Hadrian's Temple, which, well, that, technically speaking, is associated with the uh, Second Temple. If you go over and look at the actual article, when you find out what it's referring to, it comes up as uh, Aelia... Capital, uh, Capitolina, but once again, this is something that's being fiercely debated back and forth by the historians on this, so, you know, time will tell. I have to let them kind of fight it out and see where the evidence leads on that whole uh, department, but it's an interesting little piece nonetheless. But, I mean, we've got all kinds of things going on here that are excruciatingly important historically, and for one, you've got this coming up, Right away, obviously, this was um, built as a church. It was dedicated under uh, Constantine. And, you know, bringing up a little tidbit here, it's been one of those interesting little uh, things that has gone on throughout history about people have been trying to understand why Constantine did what he did. Was he a Christian at certain points and all that? Well, to point out something important here real quick, he had a deathbed confession. So his motives are a lot different than most people would think. And, you know, I know some of the ideas that have been passed around, and I've seen the arguments by the academics that sort of give credence to the fact that the theoretical idea that Constantine took over Christianity because he knew it would be a great way to keep Rome going as a political Agenda and all that makes no sense when Christianity did not have an excruciatingly large amount of followers at that point in time. It was not anything that was a huge, there was no major reason for him to take that over for a political agenda. So that argument kind of falls to the floor. And I know I've heard for years on end people arguing in that direction stating, well, that's what happened. la di da da It's not the case. The argument doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But anyways, moving forward, you know, as was brought up, uh, basically here, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the 2nd century AD, built a temple dedicated to the goddess Venus in order to bury the cave which Jesus had been buried. 
And then it goes on, Constantine, as I brought up, and it gives a little bit more um, information concerning that with Constantine. And then uh, damage and destruction. You see, because, oh boy, you see, in this first line here, we've already got to talk about something. The building was damaged by fire in May of 614 when the Sassanid Empire under, well, they pronounce it Khorasan II here, but I'm just going to say it the way it really is said. Cyrus II invaded Jerusalem and captured the True Cross. Yes, folks, that is the proper way to say Cyrus from the Persian. The Sassanid Empire was a reemergence of the Persian Empire. They referred to them as the Neo-Persians. The Parthian Empire, they were not Persians. I've talked about this time and time again, and you'll get people out there that are teaching history of the Christian persuasion that try to get you to think they were the Persians when they weren't. It is known by the academics that the Arsakid Empire, they were Saka, they were Scythian. This has been ironed out over and over and over again. A vast majority of the academic work that I go through, they point the same thing out time and time and time again. So, rightly so, people point out that the Magi probably came from the Parthian kingdom. But then they go, well, they were Persian, so that had to be why they were Persian Magi. Wrong answer. They were Parthian. That is excruciatingly important because the Sassanid Empire becomes very important in understanding this next time around the ride. Because, yes, major events played out with the Sassanid Empire that end up fulfilling the prophecies a second time around the ride, including when the caliphate, the second caliphate, when his armies destroyed the Persian Empire of that time and the king was murdered, it plays out in the exact same way that it did at the time of Alexander the Great. To the letter. So now we know that we're looking at something, isochronally speaking, that's very important. But once again, this happened during the Sassanid Empire under Cyrus II when he invaded Jerusalem and captured the true cause. Now, there's a lot of other details of things that went on during this time frame as well, including a spot where the Jewish people aligned themselves with the Sassanid Empire. And the Byzantine emperor at that point in time came into the city and almost slaughtered him to the man. Which, of course, you don't really see anybody talk about too much. But it happened. Okay, and then we move forward into 630. The emperor Hereculus, who was a Byzantine emperor, restored it and rebuilt the church after recapturing the city. After Jerusalem under Arab rule, it remained a Christian church with the early Muslim rulers protecting the city's Christian sites. Story reports that Caliph Umar ibn al-Khattab visited the church and stopped to pray on the balcony, but at the time of the prayer, he turned away from the church and prayed outside. He feared that future generations would misinterpret this gesture, taking it as a pretext to turn the church into a mosque. Uh, Eucatus added that Umar wrote a decree prohibiting Muslims from praying at the location. This building suffered a severe damage due to an earthquake in 746. 
Early in the 9th century, after another earthquake damaged the dome of Anastasius, the damage was repaired in 810 by Patriarch Thomas. In the year 841, the church suffered a fire in 935. The Orthodox Christians prevented the construction of a Muslim mosque adjacent to the church. In 938, a new fire damaged the inside of the basilica and closed to the rotunda. In 996, due to the defeat of Muslim armies in the region of Syria, a riot broke out, which was followed by reprisals. The basilica was burned again, the doors and roof were burned, and the patriarch John VII was murdered. On 18 of October, the Fatimid Caliph Al-Hakim B. Amr Allah ordered the complete destruction of the church as part of the more general campaign against Christian places of worship in Palestine and Egypt. The damage was extensive, with a few parts of the early church remaining. Christian Europe reacted with shock and expulsions of Jews. For example, Clinic monk Rodephilus Glaber and blamed the Jews. With the result, the Jews were expelled from Limoges and the other French towns and impetus to later crusades. Inadvertently, yes, this had tied in, in a way, leading up to the crusades. At the same time, I think they're, they're sort of overarching the emphasis on what took place here. For one, the Fatimid Caliphate, who are they? Well, the Fatimids were a group of Shiite that took over Egypt. They basically, through proclaiming through Fatima, which was a daughter of Muhammad, they were claiming to be descended from that. Not too much more I need to cover on that. And then, of course, I believe at the, this point in history when this took place, that was probably under Basel II, which, guess what? This is when the Macedonian dynasty started ruling in the Byzantine Empire. And the Macedonian dynasty was excruciatingly important, especially under Basel II, because of the amount of the conquest that he launched on, besides having to fight the Bulgarians at that point in time, he completely redrew the map of the Middle East again, capturing back a huge portion of lands that were taken during the different uh, Muslim conquests. So it's, once again, it's one of them uh, pretty important little spots in history. So I'm going to take a breather here and let Matthew jump in. Let me state this, something that really, really bothers me. Uh, the relations here with, with things going on with Adam, and we know that the Bible, God's Holy Word, says that Christ was the final Adam. But this whole diatribe here just, just kind of bothers me. I shall read it. Beneath the Calvary and the two chapels there on the main floor, there is the chapel of Adam, according to tradition, Jesus was crucified over the place where Adam's skull was buried. According to some, at the crucifixion, the blood of Christ ran down the cross and through the rocks to fill the skull of Adam. Now, the rock of Calvary appears cracked through a window on the altar wall, with the crack traditionally claimed to be caused by the earthquake that occurred when Jesus died on the cross while some scholars claim it to be the result of quarrying against the natural flaw in the rock. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this would be the absolute perfect place to trip the tribulation trigger. Now, I literally had not thought of that until right now. I had forgotten that Adam is also supposed to be buried there. And we have extensive scripture saying that Christ was the last Adam. Now, I had no idea that they had created a window so you could see the actual Calvary rock and its crack. Now, let us prophetically look at that verse again. Who opposes and exalts himself above or over. He would literally be standing over the tomb of Christ. In elevation, he would be standing over it. Above every so-called God or object of worship, ladies and gentlemen, this entire plaza here, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is absolutely full of objects of worship. And as a matter of fact... I don't think there is any place with more, well, I have to say it, Christian objects of worship. Now, you can just look at pictures like the altar of the crucifixion. It's, well, make no mistakes about it. It's, it's a grandiose sight to see. But it reminds me of, well, the great falling out with the worship of angels, the iconoclast rebellion, because there's icons literally completely filling it and adorned magnificently. It's just, it's just adorned, like I stated, I doubt you could find any place more filled with Christian objects of worship. And that's a fact. That, that, that is literally a fact. So, that just takes me aback, is what it does. It literally takes me aback. And it's just uh, looking at even the rotunda is just, well, ladies and gentlemen, it's full of objects of worship. It's full of it. Now, this bothers me too. You know that Brian and I have shared with you many times that a major player in Israel are the Georgian people that speak their own language, Georgian Hebrew. Historically, it is the Georgians that have retained the key to the Aedicule. That makes me take pause. What is the what what is that, the Aedicule? Well, in the center of the rotunda is the chapel, and that contains the Holy Sepulchre itself. It has two rooms, the first holding the angel stone, which is believed to be a fragment of the large stone that sealed the tomb. The second is the tomb itself. 
Now, possibly due to the fact that the pilgrims laid their hands on the tomb or to prevent eager pilgrims from removing bits of the original rock as souvenirs, a marble plaque was placed in the 14th century on the tomb to prevent further damage to the tomb. It's those Georgians that hold the key to that. I just found that out when you did. Brian, um, back to you. Well, that's interesting that the portion they're bringing up, uh, Adam's skull, because I had, over the years, there's that infamous uh, idea that's floated around that uh, the skull of Goliath was there at Golgotha. So that's kind of um, a little bit different than uh, being Adam's skull now, isn't it? And that adds a whole lot more into understanding what's going on here. Now, I like how you brought up the iconoclast. That whole, boy, oh boy, folks, look into that, that whole section of history where that broke out, where they were fighting over the, uh, if they should be worshiping icons or not, which, um, you know, essentially to break it down, some thought they were idols and they shouldn't be worshiping them. And this caused a great big rift and division um, in the midst of uh, the Byzantine churches and even the other churches spread throughout varied areas and this went on for a long time so you know i found that interesting you brought that up and of course the georgians because they come up all over the place specifically it stands out when you get to that macedonian dynasty within the byzantine empire and they're all over the place and with all kinds of uh intrigues going on obviously because you had uh alliances i believe off the top of my head some of the alliances were with muslim groups and then at times they would break away align themselves with other people and this just went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth um even in the midst of uh this article i'm looking at here it's talking about the reconstruction in the 11th uh century they bring up this emperor constantine nine uh, Monoc how do you say that? Mono Makos. And he was somebody I was looking into quite deeply last week because he's got an interesting little relation in his, uh, family tree that put him on the throne. But I don't really need to bring that up too much. But nonetheless, I believe it's during his reign that there was a lot of the fighting going on back and forth and back and forth with them trying to get, um, Georgia basically to either align with them or do what it was they would do because <laughs> this whole section of history is look it's laying the groundwork for getting to where we are today it's moving all the players into their positions because you had invasion after invasion after invasion going on be it people coming in through Central Asia you had all the fighting going on up in the European nations you go over to Britain and that was just complete and absolute chaos there. It's just nonstop anarchy. I don't know what else to call it. But every single little bit of this is laying the groundwork to get to where everybody was in their place in these last days. Because without all of this stuff happening in the Middle Ages, well, lo and behold, prophecy doesn't make sense. Especially when you go to like Ezekiel 39, 38. And you look at the direction certain groups of people are supposed to come from, 
well, those places are north of Israel as we speak. And those European nations had to be set in their proper place at that time. You know, it just, just leaves you stunned. The ramifications of what we very well could be talking about, because nobody's expecting this, Brian. And that completely disturbs me. Completely disturbs me. And the church today is so caught up. They have not been educated. They have literally been entertained. And 90% of what the Bible actually come out and says, they, they, they literally have no idea what it states. And this gets very close to home. I've stated this before publicly that it really bothered me when we tried out a new church and uh, my daughter's Sunday school teacher asked me my daughter's name. I said, Gethsemane. She goes, really, what does that mean? And ladies and gentlemen, if, if you don't know where Jesus prayed, you got no business being a Sunday school teacher. You got no business being a Sunday school teacher if you don't know what Gethsemane is. You 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 really don't. You got no business teaching anything in a church. And it's just amazing how you know here of late I've been pointing out the simple fact that if you do a news search once a week, you will find the word rapture somewhere in the news. I mean, without fail. They continually toe the line on the entertainment industry. But once we got this notification from the Temple Mount, and Brian, I'm going to be honest with you, I got a heads up before everybody else did. I mean, I work, so it's kind of hit and miss, but it took them a few days. But I was contacted and I was told uh, Matthew, you need to be aware that uh, this red heifer, do you know it was born on the 17th of Elul? Well, okay, what, yeah, they're going to inspect it on the 23rd of Elul. And I said, well, nobody knows, nobody's going to know what you're talking about because that's not September the 11th on their calendar. And they don't have any idea that this ties in exactly with going back to the days of Noah and the days of Noah being established by the raven and the dove. And this is all coming down full bore that, you know, someone sent me a message the other day, don't they need the ashes of the previous heifer? And I said, do you know nothing about Vindal Jones that he found the cataract? Well, yeah, and then the... Uh, the Kabbalists backed him, uh, you know, publicly to find the Ark of the Covenant. They know there's no finding the Ark of the Covenant. Why do you think it's not on the Arch of Titus, ladies and gentlemen? Because God already told you where it's at. It's in heaven right now. It was taken to heaven. That's where it's at. That Ark of the Covenant story was just a cover story. They didn't want you to know that they found the ashes of the red heifer with the cataract. Now look, if this, if this red heifer... Makes it seven months with no blemishes on it, no white patches or brown patches or whatever appearing on it. Well, most of you forget that that God wasn't lying in Numbers chapter 19. You think it's a fairy tale or something, that it's not real. I assure you, it's real. And when God made promises, 
concerning the physical effects of what would happen with the ashes of a said red heifer, well, you can take it to the bank. Because I assure you, the Assyrian false prophet, he does. And he's something different than you. He's, he's, he's different than you, ladies and gentlemen. He's not in the bridal procession. And he knows it. He knows he's not a Jew. He knows he's not a Gentile. He knows he's one exclusive thing. He knows he's the Lord's axe. Ladies and gentlemen. And you need to know that this is how he is elevated to even overpower the host of heaven and to exercise dominion over them because he is the Lord's axe and he knows it. He knows it. Now, speaking about celestial somology just for a second, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but Brian and I have reminded you of this time and time and time again. We really have. When the articles was released, Brian and I share with you that, look, the origin of the interstellar wind has changed. It's changed. When it was released by the academic community, that one side of our core has begun to crystallize. We know that every single time there's an earthquake, ladies and gentlemen, that's how we know the Earth's not flat. Because the earthquakes go all the way through the spherical Earth hits the crust on the other side and reverberates back. We've known for quite a few years now. One side of that iron core is crystallized. These things are serious, and it just comes out in the news in the same breath that the news of the red heifer comes out, that for some strange reason, which even to today, nobody can give us a reason as to why uh, the solar observatory in Mexico uh, was closed by the F was closed by the FBI. Look, the Sunspot Solar Observatory in New Mexico was closed due to security concerns. Now look, ladies and gentlemen, you didn't just start having problems with conspiracy theories. The origin of the interstellar wind has has moved. It, it hasn't just moved. It's north. It's moved across the ecliptic. It's on the wrong side of the ecliptic. One side of the core of your planet has already crystallized. So, whatever's going on with this mysterious security issue, how could you possibly have a security issue, ladies and gentlemen, at a telescope? You can't, ladies and gentlemen. There's no reason to have a security issue. Brian, back to you. Oh, yeah, that uh, that story's been all over the place, and I've seen some interesting bits and pieces of speculation going on with that whole thing. It's literally, uh, I don't know, ridiculous, I guess, because that's just one of those things I decided to look the other way on. Whatever in the heck it is that happened there, it may be declassified at some point in time, or it may never be, but right now speculating about moon men and everything else I think is really a distraction. And why do I say that? Well, it kind of goes back around to square one. 
Um, I mean, right now, as just brought up, I mean, I have a hard time seeing many people that realize what they need to be looking at in the news, watching for. I haven't seen any of the, um, you know, the uh, ones that have dubbed themselves Watchmen's. I don't see any of them watching the Kurdish portions of Iraq. I don't barely see any of them stating anything whatsoever about what's going on with uh, the upcoming possible attack on Idlib here in Syria, which if that fires off, it could be humongous. Um, what else do we have going on? I mean, yesterday, Israel, or at least they're stating it was Israel again. We know full well that Israel never... Uh, divulges for the most part if it was them or not but we had another uh, weapons depot was struck in uh near damascus that was for uh weapons coming from iran for uh hezbollah so i mean we've got a lot of stuff going on in the news right now that we should be keeping an eye on you know and <laughs> let me not even bring up earth changes for crying out loud, we've seen some of the most unbelievable things going on throughout the entirety of this summer season, all throughout the entire world. Just heat waves that are off the charts. I mean, how much of America is up in flames at the moment? And what what do I see a lot of the ones dubbing themselves watchmen looking for? A peace treaty. A peace treaty. And then they're talking about the dividing of Israel, but they, for some reason, never mention the Oslo Accords and the Camp David Accords, where Israel already was divided. They just completely overlooked those. We don't always know what to look for. But I tell you one thing, with studying history... The more I keep studying it, the more I get a better idea of what in the world we're supposed to be looking for. And it was through studying history that I stumbled onto this interesting little statement made by that priest. One that made my head start spinning and go, I wonder. And it just makes me wonder how much else I've missed where I should be asking, I wonder. Boy, it, it, it really does. It really does you know man oh man um it really does i'm just kind of shocked at you stumbling across this it just is absolutely amazing and i never thought that you know man brian i just don't know what to say if the false prophet gets his hands on the ashes of the red heifer Lord have mercy. You know, Brian, would you agree that this would be the perfect place to trip the tribulation trigger? Yeah. Especially when you look at the Greek and you start realizing where those where that term comes up. It just it just makes me it makes me shake my head. I mean, you know, when I have world renowned I mean, rabbis with international followings, followings that just exceed anything in this country, that's for sure. And I come home from work one day, 
and uh, I've got emails from two of them pointing out the same thing to me, asking me what's my opinion on on the end of this matter because they know <laughs> they know if 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 you want to get things from a different perspective or shall we say different vantage point well they neither one of them mentioned that they had contacted anybody else they just contacted me and that should bother everybody that None of their supposed crusading watchmen on the wall told them that, by the way, Farad Heifer was inspected on the anniversary for 9-11. Because they don't even realize that the Jews hold that as a day of mourning. They don't even know that. Well, they don't care. I guess is the best way to put it. They don't care. But... Just take note, ladies and gentlemen, that that dove came back at twilight with that olive leaf in his mouth. Now, you know, the olive is used a whole lot more in the Bible than anybody wants to realize or even talk about. And that's bothering enough. Brian, to me, this is, this is pretty disturbing. But, you know, let's, let, here, let me talk a little bit about what I sent back to both of these rabbis. I said, you know that word in Daniel 9, 27 for wing of the temple, what all the Americans say. They said, yes, yes, we know it well. Really? You know, then... That it's in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 16, right? Ladies and gentlemen, you have to realize that Golgotha would have been the antipode to the Garden of Eden. That Adam was at the beginning, was at the closest center of the earth. That would make the final Adam dying at the extremity or the wing of the earth. And that's what Isaiah chapter 24, verse 16 says. From the uttermost part of the earth, we have heard songs. Even glory to the righteous. Now, let's just pause right here. I've already told you, and you can research it for yourself. Just look up what happens at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on Easter. Let me finish the verse. But I said, my leanness, my leanness, woe unto me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously, yea. The treacherous dealers have dealt, dealt very treacherously. They asked me concerning the alphanumerics of this verse. Of course, that kind of confused me because they're supposed to be the, well... All-knowing when it comes to the alphanumerics, what, is, what business do they have asking a Christian? Of course, I showed them no disrespect by asking them that, but that's what I was thinking. But like I said, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the perfect place to trip the tribulation trigger. 
it'd be the perfect place. And from that point on, you have to realize that Isaiah chapter 24 finishes the way it does for a reason. Those things really are going to happen. They they really are going to happen. God, he, he doesn't care if you think he's lying or not, and he doesn't care if you know what's going to happen. He don't care, because you can't stop it. Brian, excuse me, Brian, back to you. Well, it's just it, you know, I find it interesting that it comes up within this verse as well, because, I mean, that's just it with everybody uh, going through their minds that somehow we're going to have a peace treaty in the midst of this. Well, let us consider for a moment that with this infamous great deal that uh, the commander-in-chief, Donald Trump, is trying to push through, somehow... By removing all the funding to the Palestinians in every possible way now, because they've had them two different ways, including hitting all the hospitals now. There's a big article coming out just the other day about how uh, the churches out there were relying on those funds for those hospitals out there, and they just went and pulled all of them. Okay, if you're going to try to sit down and get some kind of peace deal... Well, this is treacherous dealing. I mean, we've seen treacherous dealers all throughout history. Don't get me wrong. But the amount of treachery that we have seen going on over the course since going from 2016 and forward has literally been on a scale that I have never witnessed before, at least in my own lifetime. Now, I know my parents and so forth grew up during... Some pretty interesting times with some interesting presidents, like uh, Nixon comes to mind for one, but we had Johnson, we had all kinds of stuff going on then. But how in the world, folks, are you going to get a peace treaty to come about when he has done every single thing that he has done in this way? Uh, the probability of a treaty coming through this administration, I don't see it. And I don't comprehend why people keep looking in these directions. I just don't. Well, nor I. That's that's all I can really say. Let me let me speak a little bit more about what happened in February. You might want to research what happened with this tax affair. Now take note, it was reported that the Greek Orthodox Church calls itself the second largest landowner in Israel after the Israeli government. Now, so far, a treaty has been made. The terms that were drawn up was the simple fact that church buildings or other religious-related facilities are exempt by law. However, the Israeli government uh, did say that uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre owed them 152 million euros of uncollected taxes on church properties. Well, anyway, Brian, just saying uh, that uh, that's pretty off the charts that nobody knew about that. Nobody realized what was going on at all. It's absolutely off the charts. It's, it's off the charts that these things were going on 
right underneath our nose, and we didn't know anything about it. But uh, I hope everybody – let me say that one more time just so everybody knows. I mean, you know how uh, the land shall be parceled out at a price? Yes, you remember that? Yep. This is what this article states. Now, what I'm telling you is real. This is from uh, the Weekend Edition. The Greek, Greek Orthodox Church is the second largest landowner after the Israeli government. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I bet you didn't know that in order to parcel out any sort of land for a price, you're in as much going to have to deal with two entities, the Israeli government and the Greek Orthodox Church. Why didn't you know that? That's the question. Why didn't you know that? Lord have mercy. Well, let me interject in, too, on top of it. This is one of the most uh, overlooked things concerning the Crusades of how actually deeply involved the Byzantine Church truly was with the entirety of what went on there as opposed to what most of the scholars just debate about back and forth, which was dealings between one of the emperors back and forth and, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's some big conspiracy theory that they came up with over the years and all that. But people don't realize that the Crusades itself was nothing more than an extension of what the Byzantine Empire was doing previous to that by keeping open the roads going from that region into Jerusalem so people could go there back and forth and trying to basically retake back all those lands that were taken by, obviously it was the, um, I don't know how you say that, uh, Suljuk or whatever, which was the Turkish uh, groups, the Turkish Muslim people at that time started taking all that land. But they... You know, when you sit down and you look at the overall organization, you realize that none of this could have been done without massive pre-planning by the Byzantines, massive uh, basically bringing food via ships through the different spots where they were marching and all of this. None of this could have been coordinated without them. And yet nobody realizes this. So when you come rolling forward and you see how much control the Greek Orthodox Church still has over this area, well, the reason would be because of what I just brought up. And yet, once again, this is history that's been swept under the rug. I mean, folks, you have to understand that what I've been working on here, now we have ample areas of Western sources on things, but of course, they only cover the Western aspects. And for the most part, as far as the Islamic history goes, either A, about 90% of it's propaganda, 10% of it is glossed over where they'll cover like 20 years in a paragraph, and it's completely and absolutely incomplete. I found one book that covers stuff extensively from the 1800s, and this guy pulls directly from the Arabic sources. It's the only book I've found out there that does this because all the other stuff is of no help 
when you're going through looking at Daniel 11, you're looking for very specific things. And if somebody tries to sweep a part of history under the rug, they don't want you to see something. And once again, I've slammed headlong into that same issue. No doubt about that, Bri. No doubt about that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time for closing comments. More importantly, I think it's time for a great big pause with me. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you all realize that we are supposed to shine. Have all of you forgotten that? It, it, it amazes me how people forget that. You know, it's... You are supposed to shine. No doubt about it. The Bible says so multiple times. But I suggest you all take a look. Just do a very simple Bible search for who and when are people supposed to start shining. Brian? That, we've added in another place to keep an eye on here, folks, and as these uh, coming weeks progress, I would strongly advise keeping an eye on Iraq's current political situation because there's a possibility things might get really heated there. They've had a couple of meetings over the course of the last couple of days, and a few positions have been put in place. We're going to have to see where this goes. There's still a lot of concern that this is going to be lost to the Iranian-aligned regimes over there, and it it's possible still that it could be. There's a lot of things that are taking place in there. There's been missile attacks by that were launched from Iran into Iraq directly at the Kurdish people over the course of the last few weeks. and not many people were paying attention to it, and it's excruciatingly important. And this circumstance in Syria, there's still been talks going on back and forth and back and forth, trying to put a end to this um, possible um, attack on that area for so that Assad can take that entire region back. We're going to have to see what happens, because they're warning this could be one of the uh, hugest humanitarian disasters of the Syrian war. And it's hugely important, so that's got to be kept a close eye on. And of course, there's been warnings over and over and over again about if Syria uses chemical weapons, that all heck will break loose. And this whole thing has been nuts. You need to keep an eye on that as well. So. Quite a few things to keep your eyes on, and now we have one more place added in, not to even mention, to see what goes on with this uh, cap. So with that said, thanks for joining us. God bless.